right, so now let's move on to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. So this was the first feature-length animated, uh, animated motion picture, premiering on December 21st, 1937. It is 49th on the first AFI 100 movies list, and then bumped up to number 34 for the 10th anniversary list. The number one animated movie on AFI's list. The number 10 villain for the Queen. The number 19 um, uh, song for of the top 100 songs for Someday My Prince Will Come. It did not win an official Oscar, but it received an honorary Oscar for Significant Screen Innovation, which was presented in the form of one regular-sized Oscar statue and seven smaller statues, which was presented by, at the time, 10-year-old Shirley Temple. Uh, looking back, it's, it's hard to get ourselves in the mindset that this was a tremendous gamble at the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, Walt Disney first announced his plan to do a feature f film in 1934, despite several people, including his own wife, trying to talk him out of it. Uh, previously, Disney had become successful due to the massive worldwide success of Mickey Mouse and animated shorts uh, that were called Silly Symphonies. But Disney actually had to mortgage his home to get through production on this. And it became, before it came out, it came to be known around the film industry as Disney's folly. Mm -hmm. So basically, this could have bankrupted Disney. Imagine that. Not only for what Disney is now, but for the entire history of animated movies, that a lot of it was riding on this one film. So Disney, in the production of it, had his people watch numerous films from which to draw inspiration, including, interestingly enough, for those who paid attention to our podcast on movies from the 20s, Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu, <laughs> which served as influences for some of the darker segments of the film. Uh, despite all the initial skepticism, when the movie premiered to a star-studded audience, it received a standing ovation and was instantly lauded by critics and the public alike. Uh, Sergei Eisenstein actually called it the greatest film ever made when, he's, when he finally saw it. It was distributed by RKO. It went on to become the most financially successful film of all time until the record was broken a couple of years later by Gone with the Wind. <laughs> uh, and, but it still remains in the top 10 all time when adjusted for inflation. Uh, just as a side note, there's a great little Walt Disney Museum on the grounds of the old Presidio in San Francisco. Uh, I'm not entirely sure why, as I'm not aware that Disney had much connection with San Francisco, but there's a lot in that museum about the development of Snow White. And they also have an old multi-plane camera, which is how they were able to simulate depth in the anima animated cells and how they could seem to move through animated scenes in, in Snow White and a few of the subsequent Disney movies. Um, there have been er earlier versions of this kind of camera, but the one that really came into common use was created specifically for the production of Snow White. So essentially what this, this camera does is it has racks where slides of animated cells can be loaded one on top of each other. And then the camera is pointed downwards through these slides and is able to kind of move around and up and down to, to appear as if you're going through the scenes and slide, slides can be added or removed. So it just an incredibly innovative process for, for animation. And uh, if anybody's in San Francisco looking for something to do, well, I'm sure it's closed at the moment, like everything else. <laughs> but when the apocalypse is over, go check it out, because it's really interesting. Um, 
One other final interesting note, it was the first movie to ever have a soundtrack released along with the movie. Although because Disney did not have a music music publishing house at the time, it remains the only music for which Disney does not hold the rights. Mm. Um, So the story, okay, we basically all know the story. We don't need to dwell on this. There's an evil queen who's obsessed with being the fairest in the land. Her mirror tells her that her niece is now more fair, so she sends a huntsman to kill her. Snow White flees into the woods where she meets the seven dwarves, et cetera, et cetera. So, Zach, I know you're a big uh, fan of Disney. What, What was your thoughts seeing it again? I'm sure you've seen it before. I was even more impressed uh, this time around just because I haven't seen it in years and since I began to really study film, I cannot believe that this came out in 1937. Uh, um, it's way, way darker than I remember. Like, this is not a quote-unquote kids movie today. I mean, this would at least be rated PG. I mean, the, the, the Queen wants... Snow White's heart in a box. <laughs> she will accept nothing less. She tells the huntsman not to just kill her, but bring her, carve out her heart and bring it back to me in a box. Um, and just yeah, some of the uh, the influences from the German expressionist movies like Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu are really evident, especially when the the huntsman's tracking her down and when Snow White's running through the woods. Uh, animation is absolutely flawless. Uh, the the uh, the play technology really gives you an immersive sense of the world because you can kind of rack focus like you would in a uh, live action movie, and you know the tree would be kind of out of focus because it's supposed to be out of focus because it's in the back and the characters are in the front, and I, yeah, I was. Um, very, very impressed. I was never really a Snow White fan as a kid because, I don't know, it just seemed... Like, when, when you're a kid, you don't really notice when you're seeing an old movie, especially with Disney, because they used the same plate technology in Snow White that they used all the way through um, Little Mermaid in 1989, which just goes to show how perfect the technology was. I mean, they used it for 70 years almost, and... Yeah, I was I was I was blown away to be quite honest. Yeah, for me it was the first time I'd seen it since I was a kid and and probably the first time really paying attention. And I have to say it did not take any time before I was fully immersed in what mm-hmm. was going. I was just right there in with the story. I thought it was incredible how easily they gave all the dwarves individual personalities. Um it just uh, it's just all the little details are what makes it great like from the little fly going to sleep on the dwarves nose when all the rest <laughs> of the dwarves are going to sleep all these tiny little details to to the queen as just an incredible villain like in full-on villain mode i love that part where she's walking past a skeleton that's kind of reaching out for water and she walks past and goes thirsty have a drink and kicks the bucket <laughs> towards this guy who's already dead like just just amazing stuff so yeah i was i was impressed and and I have to say I will you know not accept any debate on this. The best character in the movie is clearly Grumpy. He's just <laughs> he's just the most hilarious character. He's the one with a character arc. He's got the best lines. Oh, he's amazing. I love the line where where they're talking. When at first he's really wary of Snow White, and 
I says, oh, I don't know what talk. Those women, they got their, their women's wiles. Right, and, exactly. And, and so what are wicked wiles? I don't know, but I'm going to get them. <laughs> just, <laughs> just fantastic. Grumpy is clearly the best. Right. But uh, to that point, uh, Charlie Chaplin actually came out and said after this was released that Dopey is one of the best comedians he's ever seen. Which D- Dopey was, was good, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And if Charlie Chaplin's saying it, and uh, that gives it some credence, but because uh, I, I can maybe, understand, maybe maybe Charlie Chaplin had a little bit of a soft spot for the silent character. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, because uh, yeah, he could identify with him in, in that respect. <laughs> yeah, I love the I love the thing where uh, it's just so funny. He's like, oh, why can't he talk? He's like, oh, I don't know. He just never tried. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So good. Yeah, the the dwarves are just so expressive, and that's definitely where Disney put the most work in for his for his animators. Um, between that and the animals, because uh, you look at Snow White and the Prince, and they're just kind of like bland, um, uh, like copy and paste looking characters. I mean, there's nothing really special about him, but then the world comes so alive with the like. He used the same model for animals and pretty much even today i mean like that's like the squirrel in that just looks like like, the squirrel from bambi and the squirrel from lady and the tramp and you know it's just he found he got so much right on the first try that they didn't have to change a whole lot up until 1990 with i mean that's insane yeah it it, it is incredible and it's it's hard to contemplate just the enormous debt that like all animated productions owe to Disney. And mm-hmm. I, I keep thinking about the number of times, for instance, that the Simpsons makes reference to Disney and, and their character of Roger Myers Jr. And in the case of Snow White, there's that amazing Duff Gardens episode with the seven Duffs, <laughs> tipsy, queasy, surly, <laughs> uh, sleazy, edgy, dizzy, and remorseful. <laughs> <laughs> like, just, But just obviously an homage to, to Snow White and just mm-hmm. all animated Productions have uh, this or this incredible debt. I will say my one small complaint about Snow White is that the climax in the movie is a little sort of Deus Ex Prince. <laughs> it's yeah. just oh, here's this prince comes along and okay, saves everybody. And that's the, that's kind of the end of the movie. But that's whatever. That's just a very very small nitpick. Um, it was really the, it was really the dwarves that uh, chase her down though. Oh yeah, chase, chase the queen down. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Oh, you just mean at the end where the prince comes and just like kisses. Yeah, he doesn't really yeah. do shit except kisses a dead body. So yeah. he's like into necrophilia. And, <laughs> yeah. and then that saves Snow White. So all right. Yeah. Well, oh whatever. yeah, but going back to how dark it was um, when the queen fell to her doom, those vultures fucking ate her. Oh yeah, yeah. They're circling around, waiting for her to fall, yeah. and then and then when she falls, they just swoop right down there. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, they they it's, ate that it's bitch. Dark. <laughs> it's dark for sure. Yeah, I, I will also say there's uh, I I put a a little. Um, I put this up on Facebook, but that washing scene that Snow White sends the dwarves out to wash up before <laughs> dinner, that seems particularly appropriate now. The, the WHO should really just release that scene as a PSA right now. They should, especially with how um, reluctant the dwarves are to wash. Exactly. Wash. Yeah. <laughs> especially, again, grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> 
This is also one of the most notable instances of uh, false memory, otherwise known as the Mandela effect, for a movie quote, along probably with Luke, I am your father, which never happened in Star Wars. But there is never a mention of mirror, mirror on the wall. She says magic mirror on the wall, and then she says slave in the mirror. But there's even a, uh, I never saw it because it looks shitty, but there's even a Julia Roberts movie called Mirror, Mirror. So that's how deep-seated this effect is on our psyche. There was never, nobody ever said mirror, mirror on the wall. Yeah, it's true. I absolutely thought that was the line. And then watching it again, I realized, nope, that's not the line. Yeah, that's it. That's just a great movie. It's hard, it's hard to move on. I could dwell on that movie forever, but let's move on yeah. to the next one. Yeah, it's probably for the best that you made the call because <laughs> I would have wanted to harp on that for a while. Um, but we're moving on to The Adventures of Robin Hood in Technicolor. We finally get a live-action Technicolor movie. Yes, we are moving forward. <laughs> So this was released by Warner Brothers, uh, directed by Michael Curtis and William Keeley, uh, written by Norman Rain, Seton Miller, and Roland Lee, based, of course, on the English legend from the uh, Crusade era. Uh, it stars Errol Flynn as Sir Robin of Loxley, a.k.a. Robin Hood, Olivia de Havilland as Maid Marian, Basil Rathborn as Sir Guy of Gisborne, and the amazing Claude Rains as Prince John. So... We all know the basic story. Outlaw, who is a nobleman, gets all up in arms when uh, King Richard, the Lionheart, is kidnapped by the French, or not, yeah, kidnapped by the Saracens and held in France. And uh, Prince John wants him to never come back because obviously he wants to be king. And so. He start, but he's also very malevolent, and he wants to tax the people of Nottingham and uh, the Saxons into poverty. So Robin Hood, along the way, just gets his band of merry men, as we know, Little John, Friar Tuck, and company, and uh, fights for the people, robs from the rich to give to the poor. My entry point to this story was probably the 70s Disney version with foxes and bears and shit as the main characters. But, uh, yeah, this was really a a perfect role for Errol Flynn. And what were your thoughts? Uh, Yeah, and and then uh, after that, the the Kevin Costner Robin Hood as well. And I was actually surprised how many scenes from that Kevin Costner movie were straight out of this. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I had thought that it made it a totally different movie, but no, they they cribbed a lot from this. Um, I was I loved the change of the color, and I will say because I was so it was so refreshing to see a movie in color. I'm kind of surprised it didn't catch on in the same way that the use of sound did. I mean, mm. they became increasingly popular, but it didn't change the industry immediately the way they the way sound did. Black and white movies were still very common well into the 50s. So that's I was kind of surprised in that way. Um, 
I thought the directing was was great. I, Michael Curtis was a pretty innovative director. There were a lot of different tracking shots and use of the camera that I hadn't really seen in, in a lot of the movies before this point. So I was particularly um, impressed by that aspect of the film. I, I will say it was... It was definitely fun. It's it's a fun run, and I can see why it had broad appeal in 1938. But there's a lot of shit in there that just wouldn't fly today. <laughs> like just the, the ridiculous costumes and and the oh, like. Yeah. But uh, but no, it was it was fun. I will say actually, the sword fighting was actually pretty good. Like so they were really hacking away at each other oh, in yeah. a couple of those scenes. No stunt doubles either. Yeah. So yeah, so that, that, really that was that was pretty impressive. So it was fun. It didn't blow me away but it was definitely fun yeah um yeah uh robin hood's costume was more bedazzled than some of the stuff elton john <laughs> wears in the 70s but <laughs> yeah uh yeah even even peter pan wasn't as uh <laughs> glitzy as that but i mean that said he was really charismatic in the role i mean uh <laughs> i always love in old movies where like they tell their own, they just laugh at their own joke and go. Ha, 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 ha. There was a lot of that. Yeah, Errol Flynn was obviously the king of that. He didn't need an audience. He kept himself amused. But yeah, every fight scene was really, really cool. Uh, obviously, the clanking of the swords left the uh, the foley work a little bit to be desired because it was just like. Instead of like the ching 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 that we see nowadays, it's like click 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 click, it's like they're battling with plastic swords. And uh, after the 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 climactic fight where he's going to save Maid Mary, and you can see that his sword is almost like bent in half. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you noticed. That, like, yeah, there, there, there's one scene too where a guy falls off onto a spear, and you can see the spear bend. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> I noticed that, and then I went back and rewound it, and yeah, that's definitely what happened. Yeah, I was I know uh the, the climactic battle between uh between him and Sir Guy was really cool, I thought. Uh the the tracking shots were awesome, the choreography was great. And I was waiting for a staircase sword fight because the only thing that was missing from this was a swing the swing from the chandelier. I yeah, thought that was gonna true. come up in this movie. But yeah, there were two things I wanted. I wanted a staircase battle and a swing from a chandelier. There was no chandelier. But to make up for it, he did do that incredible stunt where he cut the gate when they were fleeing from the tournament, and he just ascended up, and it didn't look like he was wearing a wire to hold him steady or anything. I think he was really in peril that time. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, as you said, no, no stunt doubles, and uh, there's there's a lot of shit that could get away with in 1930s Hollywood that they, they were just doing that, that stuff. Um, you mentioned the great Claude Rains, and... and just on him, what what a great run he had. Within just a few years, yeah. he was in Robin Hood, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and Casablanca, all within about four years. I mean, that's just a great run. Almost unrecognizable. Exactly, in, uh, yeah, totally the, he, different characters in all three movies. Phenomenal character actor. He's not the you know the quote unquote movie star that we saw rise in the twenties and thirties. He was perfectly perfectly fine with just immersing himself in a character to the point where. If people don't, or if people aren't looking for Claude Rains, they wouldn't know it was him. Yeah, yeah. No, it was uh, it was fun. I'm, I'm glad I watched it. Yeah, and uh, just a little bit about Errol Flynn because this is probably the only time we'll be able to talk about him because his uh, his career kind of fizzled out after the 30s, especially when you're talking about top 10 movies in each decade. 
But, I mean, this guy was the ultimate Hollywood playboy and notorious Lothario. Uh, like, for Game of Thrones fans out there, he was basically the Oberyn Martell of old Hollywood. He, he would, fucked anything that moved, drank like a fish, and smoked cigarettes like there was no tomorrow, which ultimately, you know, led to his death of liver cirrhosis in the 50s, but... Uh, <laughs> Yikes. It, it, it led to the... Uh, he was so good with women that it led to the saying, in like Flynn, meaning something easy to do. And uh, he actually wanted to name his autobiography In Like Me, which I thought would have been amazing. But he couldn't, he, he couldn't get that past the publishers. <laughs> oh, that, that would have been a great title. So, so he wound up calling it My Wicked, Wicked Ways. But I, I thought In Like Me was just like the epitome of Errol Flynn. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a fun romp. Um, I, I, would, I would show it to kids. You know, I, I thought, oh, yeah. I think, yeah. I think I would love it as like a five, six, seven year old because it's just an easy story to follow. There's, there's a lot of good fight scenes. The, the the pace is quick, so yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah. All right, let's move on to 1939, when our last year now of the decade, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I guess this is just another lost cause, Mr. Payne. He said once they were the only causes worth fighting for. And he fought for them once. For the only reason any man ever fights for them. Because of just one plain, simple rule. Love thy neighbor. And it premiered on October 17th, 1939. It won the Oscar for Best Original Story and was nominated for 10 other Oscars, including Best Picture, Director, and Actor. It is number 29 on AFI's 100 Movies list, upgraded to number 26 on the 10th Anniversary Edition. It is number 11 um, for uh, the Jefferson Smith on the Top 100 Heroes list, and number 5 on the Cheers list of Most Inspiring Films. It was directed by Frank Capra, one of the best directors in Hollywood history, and at the time of this movie, he was probably the biggest director in the business, having won three of the previous five Best Director Oscars for It Happened One Night, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and You Can't Take It With You. He was an Italian immigrant who grew up poor in California. He started in the business with a bunch of different jobs before becoming a gag writer for Hal Roach's Little Rascals film. (laughs) You you might remember uh, Hal Roach, uh, that name from our 20s podcast, as the producer behind Safety Last. Before eventually, um, Frank Capra went to work for Harry Cohn's new Columbia Pictures where he eventually became his most trusted director until his success exploded in the 1930s. And this was definitely the peak of his career, even if he did go on to make A Wonderful Life a few years later. Now, the actor, main actor in this movie, the protagonist, was played by Jimmy Stewart, who is just... Jimmy Stewart's just the best. He's just flat out one of the greatest actors and movie stars in history. Um, He was nominated five times for Best Actor, including for this movie, and he won once. He was also awarded an honorary Oscar in 1985. He is third on AFI's list of greatest actors. Born in Pennsylvania, he became interested in acting when he went to Princeton. 
He made his name playing morally upstanding characters, as he did in this movie, but later in his career, he changed and started playing more morally ambiguous characters, for instance, in several Hitchcock movies. But Stewart wasn't actually top-billed in this film. That honor went to Jean Arthur. Yeah, that shocks me. Yeah, she was an incredibly popular actress at the time, mostly known for comedic roles. Uh, although she actually was one of the four finalists for the role of Scarlett O'Hara in the film where we'll review last on this podcast. Her final film role was also not a comedy in Shane. Um, she was nominated for one Oscar but didn't win. She was notoriously reticent with the press and almost never socialized in Hollywood. Um, she was extremely nervous when acting in public, although it basically never showed. And interestingly enough, little side note here, after her acting career, she taught drama at Vassar College, where hmm. one, of her, one of her students was a young Meryl Streep. Wow. Who, who she said she immediately recognized as a tremendous talent. So cool little uh, side note and, and uh, a sort of link between uh, eras of Hollywood. So, the story of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. After the death of a senator, an idealistic young man who leads camps for boys is appointed to fill a seat in Congress, where the party bosses believe he'll be a dupe that they can control. But instead, his ideals clash with the corrupt politicians and party machine of his state, leading to a showdown when they try to get him removed from the Senate. So, that is uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. What did you think of it? I watched it for the very first time today, and I absolutely loved it. I'm interested to get your take on this, but as uh, as an American, this like really touched me <laughs> with the uh, with the 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 uncynical patriotism that that was basically the entire message of the movie. How uh, America was founded on these principles, and how we so quickly strayed away and haven't gone back at all <laughs> it's just gotten worse and worse so to see a movie like mr smith goes to washington was really refreshing even today uh i don't i wouldn't want anybody to remake this movie but i think everybody should see this movie i think this is the movie that they should show in american at least well maybe all public schools but at least american public schools because they do a really good job of explaining the explaining the uh, bureaucracy and all, all the red tape that has to go through Congress just for a bill to get passed, and how there's all these, you know, you know, uh, scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, all these uh, uh, behind-the-scenes deals, and, you know, it's not just, oh, he, you know, the American government, it's, it's this pinnacle of honesty and freedom and all that kind of shit, and, yeah, I mean, Jimmy Stewart was obviously the perfect person to play the role, I know he wasn't the first choice, but uh, yeah, I mean, him and Capra together made absolute magic in this movie. I loved it. Yeah, I, I loved it too. I'd, I'd actually seen it before um, and probably loved it more this time around. Uh, I think what I what I liked about it most was just how funny it was. Mm. I, I felt found myself laughing out loud all the time throughout this movie, and a lot of that was was Jimmy Stewart and and uh, and Gene Arthur. But mm-hmm. it was uh, but it, some of the smaller bit players too, like the guy who plays the reporter. Yeah, they he's were just, awesome. They were just oh, it was so funny. This movie, um, 
And yeah, Capra must have had some sort of clause in his contract where he needed to have at least one scene where Jimmy Stewart stared teary off, teary eyed off into the distance as Old Lang Syne was playing. <laughs> exactly, I thought that same thing. <laughs> so, exactly. I was like, wait a minute, did he jump forward to It's a wonderful life already? <laughs> the exact same scene. But no, it um, it was yeah, it was it was fantastic, and some of the. The really cool little things. There's this great scene where Jimmy Stewart's talking to this girl that he likes, um, but the camera doesn't show their faces at all. It's just focused for the entire scene, just yeah, focused brilliant. on his brilliant. hands as he's fiddling around with his hat the whole time and keeps dropping it and just showing how nervous he was. That that was just an amazing scene, and and really probably innovative and original for 1930s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I was not surprised to see that the American government immediately condemned this movie and saw it as a piece of communist propaganda. That is just so typical government. Anything that uh, satirizes them, exposes them, lambasts them, oh, it's communist, communist, communist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, even though Frank Frank Capra was anything but a communist, but anyway. (laughs) Yeah, of course, the the leader of that whole gang was none other than Joe Kennedy, who was, regardless of your thoughts of uh, JFK or anything, that guy was... A piece of shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, no question about it. Yeah, he definitely would have been one of those party bosses that this movie is, uh, sets up as the main villains. So that was Joe Kennedy in a nutshell. Yeah, and I pulled a quote from Albin W. Barkley, a Democrat in the Senate uh, at the time. Uh, he, he said, uh, it made the Senate look like a bunch of crooks, which is pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> He's like he's almost self satirizing in this in these quotes, uh, and the last one, my favorite one is it showed the Senate as the biggest aggregation of nincompoops on record, which they are. Yeah, so, yeah. so it was a documentary, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, uh, I thought. Um, Oh, uh, yeah, there, there was just... Uh, I, I know you said this is a movie that should never be remade, but I actually think a remade... I mean, it's not like political corruption ever goes out of... Out of uh out of um, you know, out of, it's always timely. Um, I think they could actually. There is a way to make a, a modern version of this. I think it would be too politicized, though. I th- well, the interesting thing though in this entire movie, you don't know who's Republican and who's Democrat. And That's so I think I- if you did something similar today, it would yeah, because obviously extremely politically polarized. But I was I was surprised as it went through they just kept referring to the majority the and the minority yeah. which i thought was actually a pretty smart way to make it appeal to everybody and they never mentioned what state he's from so nope. he's he's the quintessential everyman yeah. and anybody can identify with it, that because I, I, no matter what party you're in as an american i think we can all agree that the government is fucked <laughs> and so and that that's a, that's what was so refreshing about watching this movie. I mean, it was made in 1939, and it's more relevant today than it's ever been. And I cannot I cannot believe it took me this long to see it. And and yeah, and this coming from Frank Capra, who is just an undeniably a massive uh, American patriot. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that he was responsible for one of the most critical movies of of politics of the time. 
Um, I do think if there ever is a remake, I could totally see Jefferson Smith being played by Channing Tatum. I think he, <laughs> I think, I think he could nail that sort of awkward, all shucks kind of like thing. But anyway, that's just... Uh, he sorry. might have to lose about 40 pounds of muscle, but... <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can see anyway. But um, one of the things that really just shocked me about this movie was during the climax when he's uh when smith is uh filibustering for almost uh, a full day and i got well first of all let me backtrack i got really moved by all the kids like uh you know just pulling up their sleeves and getting to the printing press and like moving all the letters around and uh making their own paper and trying to get the word out and then we juxtapose that with the like the machinery that uh the antagonist has and just like all the like it's so overwhelming odds like i don't know how like it was kind of unrealistic that they got all that shit done within 24 hours but that's beside the point yeah yeah (laughs) but the violence against the kids was really shocking yeah they ran these kids off the road exactly literally yeah it was yeah and we never we never tracked back to those kids so for all we know they got killed yeah exactly yeah there there were dudes like walking in and punching kids in the face (laughs) but because I, I was actually laughing to myself, I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, because I saw the two cars coming along the road, and I was like, "Oh, they're not gonna run the kids off the road, are they?" They just <laughs> crash into them. I was like, "Holy fuck!" <laughs> yeah, it was kind of shocking. <laughs> it didn't pull any punches, that's for sure. No, but I found it incredibly inspiring, and yeah, yeah. oh yeah, I loved it. And as you said, no, no better person to play that than than Jimmy Stewart, right? So then we move on to. The Wizard of Oz in 1939. If you don't know this movie, I don't know what the fuck you're doing listening to this podcast, <laughs> but but here we go. It was uh, released by MGM. It was m- almost totally directed by Victor Fleming, although he got exhausted pulling double duty on this and Gone with the Wind, understandably. So King Vidor stepped in to do some uncredited directing here, which wound up being really contentious. Uh, it was written by Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. It stars, of course, Judy Garland as Dorothy, Frank Morgan as several characters, including the eponymous wizard, Ray Bulger as... Uh, Bulger or Bulger? Uh, Bulger, yeah, I think. Bulger. As both Hunk and Scarecrow, Jack Haley as both Hickory and the Tin Man, Burt Lair as Zeke and the Cowardly Lion, Billy Burke as Glinda the Good Witch, Margaret Hamilton as Miss Gulch slash the Wicked Witch of the West, and of course, Terry the Terrier as Toto. It was number 10 on AFI's Top 100 Movies list. It has two songs on the Top 100 list, number one being Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which is the number one, and number 82, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. It also has three quotes out of the Top 100, according to AFI. Uh, Number four is Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Number 23 is There's No Place Like Home. And number 99 is I'll Get You, My Pretty, and Your Little Dog, Too. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we all know the story. This little naive farm girl from Kansas uh, wants to go somewhere over the rainbow. She doesn't like it where she is. She wants to see the world. Uh, her dog almost gets viciously murdered by this fucking bitch, Miss Gulch, who... <laughs> Just wants to kill her dog for almost no reason. There's, there's yeah, horrible person. Yeah, there's very little resistance from <laughs> Ani Am, 
to the murder of Toto. So that gets you involved right away. Uh, a wicked tornado comes, scoops up the house whole, and deposits it in the Land of Oz, which is this fantastical Technicolor world where she meets munchkins, a scarecrow, a tin man, a cowardly lion, witches, good witches, bad witches. She goes on a quest to get back home, and she realizes in the end that you shouldn't travel. (laughs) (laughs) Another important public service announcement (laughs) for, for these times. You should stay right where you are, never move, because there's no place like home. (laughs) so i'm sure you've seen this multiple times but for this podcast what were your thoughts on this rewatch uh my first thought on this rewatch was that although we had seen color in robin hood the colors in the wizard of oz are just so much more vibrant and vivid than than anything we'd seen to date Mm -hmm. and just the the use of color in this film was was extraordinary the the entire film is is incredibly inventive, and I, I mean not so much the story, which is obviously based on Frank Baum's book, but the set design and the color choices and just everything about it all along the way, just so inventive all the choices that they made when they were making this. And um, uh, my my other thought while watching it is that it's it's amazing how memorable some of those lines and songs are. When the only way people had to see this back then was in the theater. Mm-hmm. So most people probably would have only seen it once or twice. And yet those things stuck. And I think that just goes to show just how, um, how, how well done it was that those things were so, those lines and those songs were so memorable. I mean, these days there's whole movies that I don't remember a damn thing about a month after I've seen them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and here, and here, this movie, all these little things stuck in your head. So yeah, I, I, uh, I really enjoyed watching it again for the most part. Yeah. This is a, this is one of the very few movies that can be considered timeless. Yeah. I think most people forget about the first 15 minutes of the movie before the twister comes because it it is in sepia color and, um, you know, little kids are just like bored, bored through the first, through the first act. And then the the parents just have to sit there and be like, don't worry, it's going to be in color soon. (laughs) (laughs) The munchkins are on the (laughs) way. Yeah. Once the, once the color, like I completely forgot about the, um, the wizard being like the uh, the charlatan in the in the, <laughs> yeah me too in, actually in, in the old shack and uh, yeah. the fact that the whole movie was kind of um, uh, foreshadowed from the very beginning like I, like I obviously forgot that multiple actors played multiple characters and which lends it to this kind of dreamlike quality which I mean we never really know if it's a dream or not but I mean it probably is. And, uh, yeah, it's the fact that she, that she reacquaints herself with all the friends she knew in Kansas when she gets to Oz. They're just in different makeup and different clothes. Um, I never noticed that. It blows my mind that the producers wanted them to cut Somewhere Over the Rainbow because... <laughs> they, 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 yeah. they, Good thing they didn't yeah, get their way. They thought it slowed the movie down. and Like, oh, come on, get to Oz already. But it is, like I said, the number one song on the AFI Top 100 songs in film of all time. And it, uh, I mean, you know, it's somewhere over the rainbow. What else can I say about it? <laughs> Everybody knows it. 
Yeah, just and, and your your point about the setups for everything in that in that first fifteen minutes. Uh, there's even a, what a couple of the characters who in Oz become sort of the Tin Man and and. Um, Scarecrow and everything. They even make mention in sort of oblique ways to those things that they're searching right. for in Oz. There's there's a few lines where they talk about things like courage and heart and whatever. Even in that for opening 15 minutes, it was just it was so well done how they they planted all that as you said, really foreshadowed the entire movie in that first little bit. Mm -hmm. Which yeah, most people and in my memory, I had pretty much skipped over as well. <laughs> I, I will say the uh, just just run random aside. Glinda, the Witch of the North, is completely useless in this movie. Absolutely, she what the hell does she do? She's she's the worst witch ever. She and she doesn't seem to do anything. Yeah, usually in these kind of movies, we get the trope of the mentor who kind of guides them, guides the main character to where they need to be until they're able to complete the mission on their own. But in this case. She doesn't do anything. She just like, she, she, yeah. She takes off, and then at the very end, when Dorothy finally figures it out, she's like, "Oh, see, that's the lesson you were supposed to learn all along." <laughs> well, what the? Fuck? Oh, thanks Come a lot. On. Thanks. Yeah. I appreciate that. It's ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, so uh, so yeah, I'm not I'm not down with Glinda, but uh, the rest of the movie, I, I, I loved. Yeah, um, you know, there's. A lot of stories uh, to bring it to a depressing note about how mistreated Julie Garland was on the set, as well as just by the powers that be at MGM for years. It basically ruined her life. Um, she was addicted to amphetamines by the time she was 15 and never really recovered from that because they had to work her for 14, 15 hour days on set. And uh, they always called her fat, even though she's beautiful in this movie as well as many others but uh yeah that's if you go and look up the judy garland story i still haven't seen judy with renee zellweger i want to but um yeah she led a really um tragic life yeah absolutely um on, on the flip side the bright side of that was a lot of the uh the little people who played the munchkins um there there's some really interesting story I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> There's a lot of rumors as well. We'll set those aside because I think most of those have been mostly debunked. <laughs> um, but uh, but there's some positive, great positive stories about all these people coming from all around the world. And, you know, we're talking about late 1930s. Most of them had never seen somebody like them before. Mm -hmm. And it was the community that formed of these people out of that movie actually led to the, to the creation of organizations for... Um, for for you know dwarf uh, people with dwarfism and stuff across the United States, so sort of great sense of community that they all found in seeing people that that looked like them. So on uh, the flip side of the the negative effects for for Judy Garland, the positive effects for a lot of the people who played the Munchkins. And just for those who do not know, those debunked myths you're referring to are those the um, Munchkin orgies. Yes. yes, yes, that, that, that would be the munchkin orgies I'm referring to. Yes, so just, uh, yeah, had to throw that out there just for people that don't know, but that yes. has been debunked. But yeah, I mean, this totally deserves to be a top ten movie of all time, in my opinion. Uh, like I said, it's timeless. You can show it to anybody of any age, and they'll get something out of it. Uh, there's really nothing that we can say about this particular movie that hasn't already been said multiple times. 
but we couldn't do a podcast on the 1930s without doing The Wizard of Oz, which also kind of pertains to our final movie. Yeah, uh, just one final note on Wizard of Oz, as uh, Zach and I are both uh, film school graduates, and uh, we looked at this uh, film in, in one of our classes, I remember, and if anybody is out there uh, learning about uh, screenwriting and screenplays, and you're interested in the eight-sequence structure, Wizard of Oz is probably the best movie to look at for that. It just really follows that eight-sequence structure almost perfectly. Yeah. Um, so in terms of story development and screenwriting, anybody who's interested in that sort of thing, check out The Wizard of Oz and, and see if you can find those moments. Okay, there's the inside of the incident. Okay, there's the first actor. And like, they're just, it's almost to the minute. It's, so it is the perfect movie for, for studying. And it's that. also the quintessential hero's journey along with that. So there's, between those exactly. two things, yeah, it's, it's a perfectly structured movie. Yeah. So that leads us to our last movie of the 1930s, which is Gone with the Wind, which premiered December 15th, 1939, so right at the end of the decade. It was based on the enormously successful 1936 novel by Margaret Mitchell. When it was announced that it would be turned into a movie, there was a massive search to find an actress to play the lead role of Scarlett O'Hara. Uh, over 1,400 actresses were interviewed. The, the only modern comparison I can really come up with of something like that would be when the Harry Potter movie uh, books, when they decided they were going to make those into movies, yeah. and there was a big, uh, a big sort of question about who, who's going to play Harry. Uh, but this was just a massive deal at the time. Uh, also great publicity for the film when it eventually came out. Uh, the role eventually went to British actress Vivian Lee. Uh, a number of studios had actually declined to bid for for the book, for the rights to, to make it into a movie, because they weren't sure how the story's structure could translate to film. The rights were eventually bought by David O. Selznick for $50,000. The production for Gone with the Wind was complicated and difficult throughout, from the script to the casting to the filming. It went through at least five writers, numerous directors and cinematographers. Apparently, Alfred Hitchcock, who had just started working with Selznick, even worked on storyboarding a few sequences for the film. <laughs> so there were tons of uh, directors and everybody involved. Uh, Victor Fleming, the director who completed the film and was given sole credit for it, um, had just been, as you mentioned, directing The Wizard of Oz. So, yeah, pretty damn good year for him, even if uh, it, it exhausted him to the point of uh, that he had to take some time off. Um, in addition to Vivian Lee, the film also starred Clark Gable, who Selznick delayed production for because he so wanted him to play the role of Rhett Butler, and Olivia de Havilland, who we actually just saw in Robin Hood. So she also had a pretty good couple of years. By the way, side note, did you know that Olivia de Havilland is still alive? Yes, yes, I actually, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, 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 I had no 103 years old. Yeah, as I was... Uh, doing my research is yeah it's just she is the last living member of the quote-unquote old hollywood days that is unbelievable i had no idea she was still alive mm. good for her yeah. that's impressive olivia de Havilland. so shout out to olivia de Havilland. hope the virus doesn't get her yeah yeah exactly yes please stay quarantined olivia de Havilland. um the film, Gone with the Wind, uh, finally premiered in, in Atlanta, as I said, in 1939. Around 300,000 people came out to see the stars arriving for the premiere. Um, stars that were absent, however, were the film's black actors and actresses who were not allowed to sit in the theater with a white audience due to Georgia's segregation laws. 
uh, reportedly, when Clark Gable found out that Hattie McDaniel wasn't going to be able to attend the premiere, he actually threatened a boycott, but she convinced him to, to attend anyway. When the film was finally released, it was very well received and became a massive success. It was so popular that it was re-released in 1942, 1947, and 1954 um, after MGM had gained full rights to the movie. They partnered at first with Selznick's company and then bought him outright. It went on to become the most successful film of all time. For the first eight months of its release, it made 70% 70 70 of all box office receipts. <laughs> uh, to this date, it remains the highest grossing movie of all time when accounting for inflation. Just for reference, um, when considering inflation, even if Avengers Endgame <laughs> had made twice as much as it did, it still wouldn't come to the inflation-adjusted total gross for God with the Wind. Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's just, I mean, when it was, it was so popular when it was first aired on television in 1976, 47.4% of households tuned in to watch it. Almost half of all <laughs> households were just sitting around watching Gone with the Wind. Amazing. It's just incredible. Uh, it was nominated for 13 Academy Awards and won eight, including Best Director, Best Picture, sorry, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress for Hattie McDaniel, the first African-American to ever win an Oscar. It also won two additional honorary awards for te technical achievements. It's all over the AFI lists, uh, number four and then number six on the top 100 movies list, number two on the 100 passions for best love stories list, Number it has three quotes, um, including the number one quote of all time for, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It has, it's number two on the top film scorers list, number 43 on the top cheers list, and number four on the epic films list. So just all of it. So what's the story? Okay. Scarlett O'Hara <laughs> lives on her family's plantation in Terra in Georgia just before the outset of the Civil War. When her cousin marries the man she believes she loves, she marries another guy out of spite who runs off and promptly gets himself killed in the war, but not even like a good death. He dies of pneumonia. <laughs> anyway, You're such a um, punk. <laughs> yeah, he's just, just, just the loser character. Um, and she did this even though she had recently met Rhett Butler, who's clearly interested in her. But, of course, he isn't considered a proper gentleman uh, because, you know, he re frequents whorehouses <laughs> and engages in other unsavory activities, I guess. Um, everything goes to shit in the war. When she moves to Atlanta, she eventually comes back to her plantation of Terra, where she pulls the family together to save the farm by working the fields themselves without the use of their field slaves. God forbid. <laughs> they actually had to, had to work themselves. Um, <laughs> The war ends, she marries a man her sister is in love with just for the money and continues to try to break up the marriage of her cousin <laughs> to no avail. Rhett Butler is constantly buzzing around this whole time and he's now fairly rich, so when Scarlett's new husband dies, they finally get married and have a daughter. But being rich and having family doesn't make them happy either and basically everything ends in tears. That's pretty much the plot of Gone with the Wind. Uh, yeah, before <laughs> we get into the... Um, I mean, we'll have to have a big discussion about the problematic aspects of this movie, but yeah, just o overall impressions first, Zach. What did you think? Um, my f my overall impression is that Scarlett O'Hara is a stone cold bitch. <laughs> she is a completely unlike True. unlikable protagonist. She has 
almost no redeeming qualities except maybe her determination, which I, I guess I can admire. But, I mean, she just... Yeah, I do not like Scarlett O'Hara at all. And I, I don't... Like, she didn't deserve to get raped and, you know, have a miscarriage and have her child die and all the misfortune that uh, befell her. But she never really changes. And even at the end, her, when it, with her final line, tomorrow's another day, you don't get a sense that she's ever going to change. She's just going to go out, find a new rich man, marry him. Um, of course, Ashley is still around, so I might go out and try to get him. But, yeah, um, I, I do not like Scarlett O'Hara. Um, uh, Rhett Butler... Uh, you know he's he's a, he's a he's a rogue he's a rapscallion. I, I, yeah, but he's not much better. I mean, he's not as bad as she is, but he's a pretty horrible person. Yeah, he too, is. Really. And the the tragic thing about this romance is they both know what shitty people they are, but they're so shitty that they can't <laughs> they they cannot bring themselves to love and appreciate one another. And yeah, it, it, it's a great it's a great story. It's a great um you know uh, like uh melting pot of these personalities but um yeah i was uh <laughs> i was just like to both of them get out of there just yeah I, I agree with you i mean it, this movie is long af and it's almost four hours and that's that's just a long time to be watching horrible people be horrible people mm-hmm. which is basically what it is for four hours so it's uh yeah, it, it, but the production, it it is an incredible movie in many ways. The production value, the scale, the filmmaking are all incredible. The score is great. That scene where she walks through uh, the streets where just thousands and thousands of wounded oh, people yeah, are yeah, lying yeah. and as she's trying to find a doctor, uh, just the, the scope of that is something we hadn't really seen much of before. So it is an incredible piece of filmmaking. Um I'm not sure I enjoyed a lot of it, though, really. See, um, yeah, like, when you sit down to watch Gone with the Wind, you're like, oh, my God, this is one of the longest movies of all time. You know, it's, it's, you, think, you think it's going to feel like homework. But for me, it actually clipped along at a pretty brisk pace considering the runtime. Um, hmm. You know, I watched it in one sitting, and uh, I didn't watch it with an intermission or anything. But, um, like... Things just happen because it covers almost 20 years, of, maybe even 30 of time. I'm not quite sure. But uh, every every couple scenes, it's like, bam, bam, bam. And it's not like five years later. That you, don't get, you don't get a title card with like one year later, five years later. But you get a sense of time as you're traveling through it. And, I mean, we go through pre-Civil War to post-Reconstruction within four hours. And I thought that was really well done because, of course, they had to cut a lot of stuff down because from the novel because that's what adaptation is like scarlet had more kids in the book et cetera, et cetera. but yeah i thought it was actually a pretty well-paced movie considering no i agree yeah it, it was it was incredibly well done i just um yeah i just i just got a little tired of watching these 
horrible people. Not that characters have to be likable, but when there's no arc, when they don't get better, it it was it was just tough to watch after a while. But uh, but no, it's it's an incredibly made film. There are a lot of incredible things about it. Um, all right, let's let's just get into a, a short discussion then. I mean, the movie's problematic on a number of levels, mm-hmm. but uh, the most prominent reason, obviously, is that it's basically a love letter to what it thinks of as the good old days of slavery. Yeah, the antebellum South. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a million racial issues to unpack in this film. We don't have time to get into all of them. Uh, but yeah, let's just say it's unlikely to win an, an uh, AACP Image Award if, <laughs> if those had existed back then. Um, interesting. I mean, nobody ever thinks of themselves as racist, and, and producer uh, Selznick thought of himself as a liberal-thinking guy, and he... It, during the making of the film, he actually did try to solicit input from from some African American groups, uh, but with the exception of excising the N word from the script, which is uh, apparently fairly common in the book, he didn't really change that much. Uh, I mean, even the fact that Hattie McDaniel became the first African American to win an Oscar is somewhat of a tainted achievement when you consider the stereotypical nature of her role and the sort of trend-setting damage that the Mammy character <laughs> kind of did yeah. over the years. So it, it's a, yeah, and that doesn't even get into some of the other issues, which, yeah, the, um, you know, scene of possible marital rape and everything. There, it's, there are a lot of problems with this movie. Yeah, but again, it's a sign of the times, and as we go through through the 20s and 30s, I think we're seeing baby steps you know i mean there's there's still they're they're still ahead of society as a whole and um i think that's been true with a lot of things that hollywood's done but uh yeah the the butterfly mcqueen character prissy was one of the most (laughs) like not just um not just totally racist but completely insufferable (laughs) Like, oh yeah. I couldn't tell if she was just uneducated or actually mentally challenged. Yeah, you know, and, and that voice just drove me nuts too. Yeah. But uh but yeah, again, all that aside, I mean it's on these lists for a reason. It's it's just incredible in scope, the story as you said, the all the all the time it spans, the the it's it's really well done. Yeah, and despite um, despite Scarlet's uh, unlikability, I do think Vivian Lee turns in a truly captivating performance. Oh yeah, and uh, same goes with Clark Gable. Yeah, he's uh, you know he's he's like the the man's man, as uh, people would say in like thirty nine. You know, he's the the man women want and the guy the guy that guys want to be. But uh, yeah, he he is really really charismatic and charming in in this role too. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. The the actors deserve all the all the credit that they got for this for this movie for sure. And I would urge people to go YouTube uh, Hattie McDaniel's uh, acceptance speech at the Oscars because it's really touching. It's short. It's only like um, it's only like a minute and a half long, but you can tell the uh, the weight that she had on her shoulders of an entire race, and that all pours out in the speech. It's really really moving. <laughs> All right, so that wraps up our 10 movies from the 1930s. Now let's just uh, wrap up with a short uh, either-or segment. Either-or! And then talk about who won the decade. So, 
First, either or. Either or, Zach. Best use of early special effects. Either King Kong or Wizard of Oz. I'm going to go with Wizard of Oz for this one. Uh, King Kong was a technical marvel, as we've discussed. But uh, if you just look up the way that even the the way that they use that they um they made that they made the uh, the tornado in Wizard of Oz by using uh two two women's stockings and like kind of vortexing them together in a uh, in a wind machine uh, that was really cool and like the flying the monkeys and you know the the paint that they used on the Tin Man and the Wicked Witch that nearly killed them both. <laughs> <laughs> Like, people almost died just to get the special effects across. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with Wizard of Oz. Okay, yeah, yeah I can definitely see your argument for that. I, I'm actually going to go the other way and go King Kong. Just, yes. just because of uh, <laughs> just because of degree of difficulty. You finally disagree. Uh, I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but just, just thinking about the challenge that they had in front of them in King Kong, where basically they're, okay, we're going to have this massive, whatever it was, 18-foot gorilla and have it interact with human characters mm-hmm. for a large portion of the movie and then we're gonna have it uh, climb up the empire state building sure and have airplanes shoot at it all all of that entirely um uh, special effects and again for 1933 sure it may look a little clumsy to us today but i i, I think it was a pretty incredible achievement that they actually managed to pull off a successful successful movie with what they tried to achieve yeah, and uh, I'm kind of counteracting my own point here, but if you look at um, like the the B horror, the B sci-fi horror movies from the '40s, '50s, and '60s, uh, they look way worse than King Kong did in the '30s. Yeah. So that's that's a testament to their special effects skills. So, either or, most audacious undertaking: Snow White or Gone with the Wind. Uh, this this is a tough one because I mean, we just talked about all the difficulties they had in production for Gone in the Wind and the, and the fact that um, very few studios even wanted to come near it or touch it, the story issues. I, I'm still going to have to go with Snow White, though, just because nobody... Had, I mean, people had made movies similar to Gone with the Wind before, not quite the same, never four hours long, never... But nobody had ever done anything like a feature-length animated picture before and the fact that Walt Disney staked everything he had on it I've, I've got to go with Snow White for this one yeah I agree because there had been epics before Gone with the Wind and really well done epics as, especially with uh, D.W. Griffith with uh, Birth of a Nation and Intolerance but yeah I gotta go with Snow White I mean first of all Disney's my man um, like you said he, he even um he even staked he, him and his brother Roy's life insurance on this movie. <laughs> so not only their houses, their cars, but their life insurance. Their families would have been left with nothing. They would have been on the street if Snow White wasn't a success. And that, to me, is just so inspiring. Yeah. Like, um, such dedication think, to his vision. Yeah, like you are so sure that this is going to work out that you're willing to mortgage your entire, not only your future, but your entire family's future because they were already married with kids at this point. It's not like you're out there just doing this all for yourself. So to be able to do that, and I mean, look at the empire it's built. So, I mean, that yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's definitely Snow White for me. 
Okay, uh, most currently relevant social commentary, either or. Either all quiet on the Western Front or Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I think I made this pretty clear in my um, <laughs> when we were talking about Mr. Smith. But yeah, Mr. Smith could easily just be made today and uh, it's, it's just as relevant as it was back then, if not more. Probably more, actually, since uh, the, you know the, the media had a lot more trust of the people back then. And between the media and politicians working together these days, you never know what the truth is. You have to cross-reference an article with four other articles just to see if you're actually getting the truth. All quiet on the Western Front. We know war is bad. We've had... I mean, just 1917 came out this year, and we know that war is bad, and uh, there's really no point to it, and the guy, the people in charge should just get in a ring shirtless and duke it out a la WWE, and you know that's the way war should be decided, so... Yeah, Mr. Smith was definitely more relevant social commentary for me. Yeah, I, th- I think, uh, unfortunately, we're going to agree on, on this one again. I will, I will say this, though, in defense of All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, there were some great scenes in that that are still relevant today. But then, uh, you pointed out that, that part where he comes home, and um, there's another segment of that that I really liked when he's talking to all the men who were sitting around, and they, they hadn't been off to war, but they know best. And so they're talking mm. about all the things, right. oh, yeah, well, you're just a soldier. What, what do you know about war? And they're, no, no, what they really got to do is this. They really got to do is that. And I think oh, yeah, and yeah, I, th- yeah. I think that's definitely um, something that's relevant today. I mean, people like to claim expertise on, on so many different things that they, they know so much better than, than other people. And uh, they, they really have no clue. They haven't experienced it. But because they've heard something or they like to put themselves in self-important positions, I think that aspect of political commentary is particular, particularly relevant. But in the end, yeah, I'll go with Mr. Smith goes to Washington as well. Yeah, we forgot to point out that scene where we're talking about All Quiet on the Western Front. But, uh, yeah, those old old guys being like, oh, no, no, Germany's on the brink of victory, even when they're literally weeks from defeat. Yeah, it just goes to show how easily the public can be manipulated. Yeah. Uh, better cartoonish villain, either or, Evil Queen from Snow White or Wicked Witch of the West? Uh, I mean, the Wicked Witch has the, the, that great quote that you did a fantastic Im- impre- <laughs> you, impression you, of. Uh, but I'm going to have to go with Evil Queen on this one. I think she was, um, I, I think she was a little more nuanced. I mean, not that she was incredibly nuanced. They were both pretty much black and white. Uh, well, uh, evil. But uh, but yeah, I, I, I'll go with the Evil Queen. Yeah. Well, yeah. This is. Um you know, splitting hairs, because these are two of the most iconic film villains of all time. But uh, I've been vacillating, but I'm actually going to go with Wicked Witch here. Okay. Because um, because she plays two roles here. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I think she's even more dastardly as Miss Gulch than she is as the Wicked Witch, because she just wants to kill this poor little dog for no reason. <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. And, okay. uh, and yeah, she's... Uh, yeah, like I said, I mean, they even made a uh, massively successful Broadway play out of The Wicked Witch. And I do love the Evil Queen, especially on this rewatch, because she is so um, just uh, not nuanced, but 
she's just evil. That's why they call the evil. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the Wicked Witch here. Final one, uh, more charismatic, either Fred Astaire or Errol Flynn. Another one I've been vacillating between. I try to make these either ors really tough, <laughs> but uh, I think I'm gonna go with uh, Fred Astaire here. Um, especially in this particular film in Swing Time. I've never seen another Fred Astaire movie, so I can't speak to those. But, uh, yeah, I love Errol Flynn's, like, natural charisma, but Fred Astaire, th- I think, has, a, like, this earnest quality to him that uh, Errol Flynn doesn't have. I think he's more identifiable. Um, uh, his, uh, I like the way he kind of fucks up sometimes, where where Errol Flynn's Robin Hood just does the right thing all the time. He's completely flawless. So, um, yeah, I'm going to go with Fred Astaire. Yeah, unfortunately, I think I'm going to agree again here. Um, <laughs> and I think, I think it's, it's hard to separate the, the actor from the roles, especially these, these two movies that we saw them in here. Uh, right. But Fred Astaire, just, everything just seems so effortless to him. And um, Errol Flynn was great and charismatic, he also came across as a bit of a dick at times. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why he was such an ass to, to Fryer Tuck in the beginning. He just came across <laughs> and just started being a bully to him for no yeah, bad he, reason. He, he, stole, so, he stole his mutton leg. and just, yeah, <laughs> just being an asshole. So, I mean, they're, they're, again, separating the, the actor from the role. But they were both very charismatic. But uh, Fred Astaire, just such effortless charm and likability that, that I'll have to go with Fred Astaire. All right, now we're on to our new segment, uh, Who Won the Decade? We're going to keep doing this through the rest of our Century series. Who won the decade as a director, Martin? Uh, For me, this one's actually pretty clear. Um, I don't think there's any questions. Frank Capra. Mm. Uh, I mean, he had won three Academy Awards for directing this decade, and just listen to these five movies. He directed Platinum Blonde with Gene Harlow early in the decade, and then it went on to It Happened One Night, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and You Can't Take It With You, all three of which won uh, him the Academy Award, and then Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I mean, he had some other movies sprinkled in there as well, but those five movies alone, I, I think it's clearly him over some other directors who had great uh, decades like uh, Victor Fleming, guy we pointed out, was in the two directed the two biggest movies at the end of the decade. George Cukor, another great director from the decade, but it, for me, it's got to be Frank Capra. Yeah, for me, it came down between Capra, Capra and Fleming, but in the end, I'll actually have to go with Fleming, oh. just because. Yeah, just because um, <laughs> to do two of what AFI considers to be the top 10 movies of all time to do two of those in one year is a just absolutely unprecedented achievement. And I know he didn't win all the accolades that Capra did. And no, I can definitely, definitely see your case for Capra. But I mean, (laughs) if you, if you, if on your headstone, you can say you directed gone with the wind and wizard of Oz, I think, anybody in the film industry would take that and two completely different movies as well exactly exactly yeah all right who won the decade actor who was the actor who won the decade i'm going with my man clark gable <laughs> uh he had it happened one night mutiny on the bounty and gone with the wind all within a 
few years span, not to mention he had around 20 plus other acting credits. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's one of the first just movie stars. Like, you know, he was pre Bogart, pre Brando, uh, and most of the stars of the twenties were com- comedies, com- uh, comedians and Gable was like a bona fide movie star. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you here. Um, definitely Clark Gable. You pointed out those movies he was in. I'd, I'd pick him over some guys who had some pretty good, uh, you know, a pretty good decade as well. Guys like Fred Astaire, the Marx Brothers as a collective, Spencer Tracy, mm. Jimmy Stewart, kind of near the beginning of his, his career. But yeah, the 30s definitely belonged to Clark Gable. Yeah, plus he didn't have a shtick. Like, he, he, he you know, he was an actor, a capital A actor, whereas, like, Fred Astaire, you know, he, he sang and danced, you know, yeah, but, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I both agree on that. So, who won the decade actress? All right, now, this one, my choice is maybe going to surprise you, but I'll, I'll preface this by saying that there were a lot of actresses to choose from in the 30s. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of women who had great decades, um, people like Jean Arthur and Marlene Dietrich and Jean Harlow, Ginger Rogers, Catherine Hepburn in the beginning of her career, Claudette Colbert. Mm-hmm. But I'm actually going to go with somebody that we didn't really mention in this podcast so far, and that's Shirley Temple. Oh, Even okay. though her career at the end of this decade, she was only 12 years old and by the end of the <laughs> decade. She absolutely dominated the decade. She was the top box office star like out of anybody, all actors better than Clark Gable, better than for years 35, 36, 37, 38. Her face was everywhere. They sold memorabilia of her all around the world. She was, in my opinion, the most recognizable actress of the of the 30s, even though, you know, she was only uh, between <laughs> two and 12 years old for that decade. All right, well, I'm glad we didn't pull a Gloria Swanson like we did in the 20s podcast because I'm going with Ginger Rogers. Um, like I said, I'd never seen uh, a, a Sarah Rogers film before, but after doing research, I saw that she starred in 43 movies in this decade alone. Wow. In, in, including eight with Fred Astaire. Uh, I just found her to be spellbinding. Uh, she's absolutely gorgeous. She m- moves like a gazelle. Uh, she's one of the most famous actresses of all time. Good choice. Yeah, she was definitely in my in my run- runners-up group. All right, which genre won the decade? I'm going with fantasy. <laughs> All right, I'm actually gonna agree. I, I sort of put fantasy slash adventure oh, okay. as as a as a as a um, as a genre. But when you you think about King Kong and Snow White and Robin Hood, I guess the adventure one, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it's definitely as we were talking about earlier. It was the decade when filmmakers sort of had this the idea in their minds that they could do anything and and whatever story popped into their heads well we'll film it and we'll find out a way to do it and almost unlimited funds back then too for this kind of thing because movies were the attraction so yeah fantasy adventure definitely the uh, the genres of the decade yeah and it makes sense culturally too because uh the times were so dark with the with the great depression that uh, escapism was the order of the day and People wanted, they, they didn't want to go to the theater to see some like really heavy shit. 
And I think that's why All Quiet on the Western Front is the only real, like, depressing movie on the list. I mean, you could argue that Gone with the Wind is, but it was so such a beloved novel that everybody just wanted to see that on the screen so that everybody already knew what the spoilers were going to be. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah, we had, you know, King Kong. Yeah, you already listed them all off, so, yeah, fantasy. And then, uh, lastly, on the Who Won the Decade category, Studio. Okay, so uh, just a quick aside. Since we're talking about the 1930s here and the beginning of the golden age of Hollywood, when we're talking about studios, we're talking basically at this time probably between what then was called the big five studios, who were Fox Pictures, MGM, which was owned by Lowe's, Paramount, RKO, and Warner Brothers. Wait, Lowe's the... The, uh, I don't the think it's the same company. This was okay. th- this was another company that they also had uh, theaters nationwide. So they oh, okay. made movies and then distributed them themselves as well. Um, and so of those five, I kind of limited myself to those five. There were you know uh, a couple others that were Universal was starting to mm-hmm. make pictures, but they still weren't quite as big as as they they are now. Um, right. And so of those five, for me, it came down to MGM versus RKO. And even though RKO made some incredible movies and maybe had the bigger highlights, I think the decade belonged to MGM. They just made so many movies, just dominated the industry in such a big way. The man in Hollywood at that time was definitely Louis B. Mayer. That oh, yeah. that it's for for me, it's got to be MGM. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I mean, everything else aside. They did Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind in the same year. It's kind of the same <laughs> argument I had with uh, Victor Fleming. I, I was I was vacillating between that and RKO, but um, it, I think RKO, I think RKO's real heyday was in the '40s when we we're going to get to that. But um, yeah, I, I agree, and it is really just a shame that thinking of RKO, just how big of a of a studio they were, that within a couple of decades they they ba- were bankrupt and totally fell apart due to. Right. Some unfortunate circumstances, some absolute mismanagement from a few people, including Howard Hughes. Just, uh, just a real <laughs> yeah. shame because, yeah, what a monster studio they were for a while there. I know. Yeah, they ran, they ran the whole show. But uh, yeah, MGM, they made Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's the end of the '30s. We're finally getting out of the depression. But guess what? World War II is on the horizon. <laughs> Non-stop hits. <laughs> so, we uh, have chosen our 10 films for the 40s that we're going to cover on our next podcast. We're both quarantined, as I'm sure most of you are, so I'm sure we'll get this one out faster than usual. Martin, what are the 10 movies? So, uh, it is becoming increasingly difficult uh, to narrow down the the 10 movies, and by the time we get to the 70s and 80s, it's going to be almost impossible to only... Oh, oh, yeah, we're we're going to fight. Yeah, we're going to come to blows (laughs) across the continent. Um, Even in this one, well, we didn't really have a big argument, but we left off uh, some interesting ones. We left off uh, Laurence Olivier and Hamlet, for instance. Um, But... These are the 10 that we ended up with. 1940. We have four movies from 1940. So we've got The Grapes of Wrath, The Great Dictator, Fantasia, and Philadelphia Story. Then we have 
two of the most popular movies of all time, Citizen Kane, 1941, and Casablanca, 1942. Then Double Indemnity, 1944. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, 1948. The Third Man, 1949. And The Bicycle Thief, 1949. So those are the 10 we will re- be reviewing in the next podcast on the 40s. Yeah, and you know what? Just watch them. What else do you have to do? Yeah, exactly. And go back and watch some of these ones from the 30s. Uh, as you can tell from, from this podcast, if you listen to this one and the, and the one we did on the 20s, this one was a lot more enjoyable. So uh, you don't necessarily have to go back and watch all those 20s movies that we went through, but uh, go back and watch some of these too. They're, it's great to go back and watch some of these old movies. Yeah, I mean, we're getting into the area where they're not all free anymore, like they were in the 20s where they're all in the public domain. But, you know, <laughs> you're at home. You're just by yourself. You're just getting sad drunk. And, uh, <laughs> well, gone, you know, gone, you, gone with the Wind is on Netflix, for instance. So if you, yeah. if you got four hours to kill, which I know a lot of you do, uh, yeah. why not throw it on? But yeah, most of these are a buck ninety nine to two ninety nine on uh, Amazon Prime if you want to check them out. So yeah, do that. And uh, yeah, so we hope to see you next time if we're all still alive. Stay strong out there. As always, you can follow us on Facebook at Unsolicited Film Reviews. Of course, go to the website, although we won't be having many new written film reviews on unsolicitedfilms.com. Unsolicitedfilmreviews.com, excuse me. But, um, you know, maybe they'll release some new streaming stuff that we can write about because I got a, I got an itchy typing finger. <laughs> so <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at unsolicited underscore film underscore reviews. You can follow me personally at Zach T. Miller on Instagram. And you can follow me on Instagram at J. Martin Cook, Cook with an E. This has been fun. It's killed some time during this uh, apocalypse. And uh, we will see you next time on the Unsolicited Film Reviews podcast. Listen to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast, hosted by Zach Miller and Martin Cook. Sponsored by No One. See you next time.